invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. Returning to this uh, second discourse of, uh, of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, second uh, large chunk of teaching, and looking at uh, the second segment of this uh, teaching, verses 5 through 15. Remember, this is coming uh, in the setting of Jesus speaking to his apostles uh, and sending them out on mission. I'm sorry, I told you the wrong verses. It's 16 through 23. Matthew 10, 16 through 23. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children arise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, you probably already noticed how different this section of the teaching seems from that first section that we looked at last Lord's Day. And, and I want to uh, highlight that as we begin. I think there are definite uh, cues that Jesus gives us here that there is a different setting for what he's saying in verses 16 through 23 from what he's saying in verses 5 through 15. Uh, let me just point out uh, at least some of those. Uh, one is, you, you probably already noticed uh, in my reading, the emphasis on the abusive treatment that Jesus' followers are going to receive. His emissaries are going to be mistreated in many different ways, flogged, and, and all kinds of bad things happening to them. In the first section, verses 5 through 15, it was said that people would sometimes not listen to them and not receive them, but there was no mention of abusive treatment. Uh, there is, in our section for today, the mention of legal prosecution, both in the religious courts, which would have been the synagogue, that's where the Jews met for worship and to conduct a, relig a religious court, as it were, and in secular courts because the mention is made of secular courts too. And again, that was not mentioned in the first section, verses 5 through 15. And the section that we look at today, clearly we're told that there is a Gentile as well as Jewish context. And you'll remember when we looked at that section, the first section of the teaching last Lord's Day, Jesus says specifically, don't go into Gentile territory. Don't even go into Samaritan territory, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so that's a difference. Uh, 
There's the mention of testimony at public trial and the fact that that testimony will be enabled by the indwelling Holy Spirit. That wasn't in the first section. There's the mention of betrayal by family, even to death. That wasn't in the first section. There's the mention of being hated by everyone. Of course, Jesus is using here hyperbole to emphasize the extent of the hatred that would come upon his people. And there is the mention of persecution from entire communities that occasion the flight of his followers. In fact, he, he commands them, flee, when uh, this kind of intense persecution arises. So in many ways, this seems to be a different kind of context than that first section. And I think there are some other things that, that point us to this idea as well. If you look at, back at verse 15, you remember that he concluded that first section, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land than for Sodom and Gomorrah. So there's a mention of the day of judgment, and, and that could be even seen as the introduction to this section, because this section ends, notice, with the coming of the Son of Man. And, and that coming is a coming, I would say, in judgment. So there's sort of a bracketing of this text that marks it out. And, and notice, too, there, staying in verse 23, when Jesus speaks of the coming of the Son of Man before the Son of Man comes, obviously that must assume that he leaves if he's going to come, because he's already here. So if he's talking about a future coming, that must mean he's not talking about his earthly ministry at that moment. Now, what seems odd is that he doesn't give us a clear indication. Okay, he doesn't uh, tell us at the beginning of verse 16, okay, now I want you to realize I'm talking about some other time. And some people would say, well, that, that means that Jesus is just mistaken. He thinks all these things are going to happen uh, very quickly, uh, but they don't. Albert Schweitzer uh, interprets the Gospels as, as one of disappointment for Jesus. He said Jesus spent all his earthly ministry expecting God was going to come in on the last minute and rescue him, and he was going to establish his kingdom. And, and Schweitzer says he died a disappointed man. And, and this is one of the texts that he goes to. Jesus is mistaken in what he's saying. But what I would suggest to you is that Jesus is simply speaking as the way Hebrew prophets always have. He, he, he's using the language of the prophets, the mention of God coming, the mention of the day of judgment. Uh, a lot of the terminology that he uses here and elsewhere in prophetic passages in the Gospels clearly reflect that Old Testament Hebrew prophetic setting. And one of the ways in which what he says in Matthew 10 is similar to what we see in the Old Testament prophets is that there, there tends to be this sort of encapsulating of prophecies uh, in one text that have to do with separate events. We have to look nowhere, for, nowhere further back than the last verses in our English Bible and in, in the uh, uh, Old Testament, the, 
chapter 4 of Malachi, the ending of Malachi. And, and there the prophet sees a day coming, burning like an oven. He's using a lot of prophetic imagery of judgment, in fact, final judgment it would seem. And, and he closes the, the prophetic word this way, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And Jesus, and the New Testament elsewhere, interprets that Elijah figure as John the baptizer. And so Malachi, in almost the same breath, is prophesying a day of judgment and the coming of John the Baptist, preaching the gospel. It would actually seem that even, even John himself uh, has the idea that judgment was going to come right away. Remember, uh, after he's taken prisoner by Herod for speaking against Herod's sin, he sends messengers to Jesus, a very poignant message. Uh, he sends to Jesus saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or do we look for another? And I think part of the reason he says that is because he was expecting judgment and he was expecting God to judge sin and establish his kingdom. And here he is languishing in prison. He's going to be executed by, by this wicked king. And Jesus simply points John to the ministry that he is conducting and says, in effect, don't give up faith. Put your confidence in me, even though things don't seem to be going the way they should be. But the, the point that I'm making is that Malachi is combining that Elijah figure is going to come before Jesus and this idea of the great and awesome day of the Lord in which he will judge all sin. We see this in the prophet Joel. In Joel, he uses this term, day of the Lord, when he's describing a natural catastrophe that's going to come on the nation because of their wickedness. Uh, it's a plague of locusts such as they've never seen before. And he calls that the day of the Lord. He's saying this natural catastrophe didn't just happen by chance. Okay, God is bringing judgment. This is the day of the Lord. In the same, same book of Joel, we see the prophecy that's quoted in the New Testament of the baptism of the Holy Spirit upon his people at Pentecost. And then later on in the book of uh, Joel, we see the day of the Lord as a time when judgment's going to come on Jerusalem. And finally, we saw, see the day of the Lord in Joel as a time in which God is going to judge the nations. So here in this one little book, this one pro prophetic book, he, he is looking ahead and seeing someone has likened it to, to looking toward the horizon and seeing successive ranges of mountains that are actually separated by many miles from one another, but appear all together, in a sense, to the, the uh, viewer. Isaiah does the same thing. His book is much longer, of course, but Isaiah speaks his prophecies concerning deliverance from the Assyrian threat, which is looming over the nation right then. Then he, he prophesies of the Babylonian threat that is not really even materialized yet, but will be the one that brings destruction and exile on God's people. He will speak of the Jewish restoration from exile. He will speak of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Some of those passages that we hear around Christmas time or Easter. 
and he will prophesy as well as the, of the new heavens and the earth. So, so in his one book, he, he, he has a whole range of events that he's looking forward to. Uh, we see this in Jesus' use of the prophet Isaiah. Over in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is, uh, the account of Jesus speaking in the synagogue in Nazareth is given. He comes to Nazareth where he's been brought up, and he goes to the synagogue. They seem to be very proud of him, at least at the beginning. Here's this hometown boy made good, and so they invite him to be the guest speaker, as it were. And so he, he opens the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and begins reading chapter, what we have is chapter 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now what we don't notice in the New Testament is he cuts off that passage in mid-sentence. He cuts it off after just the first phrases of the final lines of that opening section. He cuts it off just before Isaiah says, the day of the vengeance of our God. And I don't think that's coincidence. I think Jesus does that purposely because remember he, he tells, for instance, he tells Nicodemus, I didn't come to judge, I came to save. And I think Jesus is saying, in effect, I know what Isaiah is talking about here. He's talking about both my comings. And so, yes, this is the moment when I'm speaking to you here in Nazareth, when you're hearing the good news. But this is not the moment for the day of the vengeance of God. And so I think in a, in a number of different ways, we see in the Old Testament and in Jesus' use of the Old Testament, this idea that within the same prophecy, different events, different emphases can be combined. And I think that justifies us then, my argument is, in seeing verses 16 through 23 as in a different context than verses 5 through 15. Now, I'll let you know, other people disagree with me on that. Okay. There are, are people who have a different interpretation of this passage, and I'd be glad to talk to you more about their interpretations if you want. Uh, but what it seems to me Jesus is doing is giving us a sequence here of phases of his ministry, of the ministry of his apostles. He's sending his apostles out, verses 5 through 15, to Galilee, remember they're confined just to Galilee, not even Judea, okay, and see, so he instructs them in that specific mission. But I believe in verses 16 and following, he's instructing them for the next phase of their mission, which is going to come after his death and resurrection. And that is going to be characterized by exactly the things that he says, puts out here. They're going to be persecuted. They're going to be hauled into the courts. They're going to be flogged before the synagogues. Remember, Saul actually is, is participating in that, okay, in that period right after, after Jesus' uh, death and resurrection. So I think Jesus is preparing them for that phase with this teaching. Uh, this is clearly not Jesus' earthly ministry, 
because they didn't come to judge. There are some that look at verse 23 and say, well, when he says before the Son of Man comes, he means he's sending the apostles out, and then he's coming behind them, and he's going to catch up with them before they get all the towns covered. Well, I just don't think that fits, mainly because of those allusions to persecution and hostility and death and all that. The apostles are not going to encounter that in this mission. And neither does it seem as though we can delay this to some other way in the future, because the, the truth is, all the towns of Israel get gone through. Okay. The country is evangelized by the early church, and it expands out from Israel's territory to Gentile territory, and Jesus didn't come before that was accomplished. So I think that Jesus is giving his disciples what they need to know about the period of time from after his death, resurrection, and ascension to the day when he comes in judgment on the nation and particularly on Jerusalem in AD 70. Don't have time to, to develop that a lot. But the, the destruction of Jerusalem is one of the most horrific, horrible scenes that is recorded in history. Uh, Josephus, an eyewitness to that time, uh, tells us about that. And we have, uh, we have information from some other sources as well, but especially Josephus. Uh, it was just a, an incredibly hard and terrible time of suffering visited on Jerusalem. And I think Jesus was anticipating that when he wept on his way into Jerusalem and said, how often I would have gathered you under my wings like a mother hen would gather her chicks, but you would not. And destruction is going to come upon you. And in fact, he said to his disciples, not one stone of the temple, these massive, huge stones weighing multiple tons each, he says not one of them is going to be left on top of the other one. And that happened in the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So I think what we have here is Jesus saying, from a time of judgment on this people, these, these very people in Israel, and, and it's going to be like that judgment that came on the nation back in the Old Testament, when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, and the people were taken into, into captivity. Uh, for that matter, we could say, well, it's, it's in a way emblematic of that day of the Lord that Joel prophesied when he said, locusts are going to devastate your crop, you're going to starve to death. All of these temporal judgments, judgments in history, are manifestations of God's judgment and foreshadow his final judgment. I think that's what's happening in this in this passage. Now, what does this have to do with us? Okay. How can we bring this from what it meant for them to what it means for us? Well, the reality is, just as these apostles and those who would follow after them, just as they would live and witness in a hostile environment, you better know that you're living 
in a hostile environment. God's people are always living in the midst of a culture that is in rebellion against God. Okay, you can think of it like you're the loyal citizens and you're living in the midst of a whole bunch of rebels against God. And rebels are not going to treat those who are loyal in a positive way. So although this has a particular application to the apostles who have lived through this time, I think it has some areas of general application that we can learn from here. So let's look at Jesus' words and, and pick out those, those lessons. Look at his imperatives. Okay, look at his commands. It's always a good way to look at his, his teaching is to look for the commands that he gives. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Here's the first command. Be wise and peaceable. Be wise and peaceable. He's using the snake, the serpent, as an image of, of cleverness, of wisdom, of cunning. We could go all the way back to Genesis 3 for that. Uh, but he's saying, I want you to be as, as wise as possible. I want you to be as peaceable as possible at the same time. Now, unfortunately, human nature usually flips that, doesn't it? <laughs> human nature is as hostile as a snake and as dumb as a bird <laughs> in many ways. Jesus is saying, I don't want you to be that way. I want you to be different, different than those who are rebelling against me. So I want you to be wise. I want you to be wise. John Chrysostom, uh, early preacher in the church, has a, has a sermon that he gives on, on this passage, and I'd like to share with you some of, of the way he interprets this. He, uh, he thinks of that imagery of the sheep among wolves first, and he says, let us be ashamed then who do the contrary, who set like wolves upon our enemies. He's saying sometimes we reverse this. Okay, we act like wolves attacking sheep. And we shouldn't be doing that. As long as we are sheep, he says, we conquer. And now catch his reasoning here. Though 10,000 wolves prowl around, we overcome and prevail. But if we become wolves, we are worsted. For the help of our shepherd departs from us, for he feeds not wolves but sheep, and he forsakes you and retires, for neither do you allow his might to be shown. If you act like wolves, Christism says, you, you won't have the help of the shepherd. What's, the, what's our consolation then? Well, here it is, Christism says, the power of him who sends you. There, wherefore, he puts before this all, saying, Behold, I send you. This suffices for your encouragement. This is your confidence, fearing none of your assailants. Do you see what he's saying? As long as you are sheep among wolves, you have the power of God with you. You have the good shepherd protecting you. He sort of hypothetically says that, well, Jesus might have done the contrary, and Suffered you to undergo nothing terrible, made your life all happy and good, no trials, not as sheep to be exposed to the wolves. I might have rendered you more formidable than lions. 
I, I might have put you in positions of power. But is it expedient that so it should be, that you should be sheep among wolves? This makes you also more glorious. This proclaims my power. Guess what he's saying there? When you live as sheep among wolves, you give glory to God and you show his power working in you in that circumstance. And he intimates then, Chrysostom says, Do not therefore despond, for I know, I know certainly, that in this way, more than any other, you will be invincible to all. Be sheep among wolves, depend on your father, depend on the spirit, rather than your own strength. But there is a a part for us to play because he does command be wise and be peaceable uh, this command to be peaceable is repeated in hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness which no one without which no one will see the lord be peaceable and be wise those two always to go together in scripture we sometimes get the idea that's that you know, an earthly sense that, that there are some people who are really wise, but they're wicked. Well, they're not truly wise if they're wicked. The peace and the wisdom go together. There's a reason why God's word emphasizes being wise so much. We have a whole book on wisdom in the Old Testament, right? Proverbs. Ecclesiastes could be considered a book of wisdom. Much wisdom other places. God's word is said to bring wisdom in, in Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, making wise the naive, that literally means. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. There's that image of, of knowing, of being wise. By them is your servant warned, he says, in keeping them there is great reward. James commends us to be wise, who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct. Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. See that combination of wisdom and meekness again. Being wise and being peaceable, being humble. Of course, that's exactly the opposite of what the serpent tempted uh, Adam to do, right? That serpent who was, in a sense, wise, he, he really brings Adam to embrace foolishness, right, and sinning. And so in Romans chapter 1, Paul pictures the effects of sin as being first and foremost, it messes up your thinking. You're not wise anymore. Although they knew God, he says of the wicked, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise they became fools. And indeed, he lists foolishness as one of the attributes of people who are given over to sin. Uh, there, there are a whole lot of other passages where we could look at, uh, for instance, Paul praying for people to be wise, for uh, people to seek wisdom. Uh, but you get the idea. As people who are sheep in the midst of wolves, you need to choose wisdom and humility, wisdom, and being peaceable. Now again, that doesn't mean that everything is going to go, go just fine for you. 
And so in the very next verse, verse 17, here's his, here's his second imperative. Okay, his first one was to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Here's the second one. Beware of men. Don't be stupid. Okay, be aware of reality. Be aware of the kind of culture that you live in. Expect persecution for my sake. Again, there's that idea that you are the loyal subjects in the midst of a bunch of rebels. You shouldn't expect them to be supportive of you. So beware. Realize what they're going to do. They're going to deliver you over to courts. They're going to flog you in their synagogues. You're going to be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Even, even today, there's all kinds of persecution going on in the world. But notice the, notice the purpose behind it that Jesus puts there at the end of verse 18. To bear witness before them or to them is the best translation there. To bear witness before them or to them and the Gentiles. This persecution is going to be my means, he's saying, for you to proclaim the gospel to the very people who are resisting it. And so he appends this then with a promise. Okay? Here's the, here's the third imperative. It's a negative imperative. Don't do this. Okay? Verse 19. Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you, what you are to say. Notice how he emphasizes words here so much in this, in this passage. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Don't worry, he's saying, when this happens to you and you're called to give an account, okay, when Peter and John stand before the Sanhedrin and they say, why are you preaching this gospel when we told you not to, okay? Or when Paul stands before the Roman Caesar, when Christians today stand before their persecutors, Jesus says, don't worry, God will give you the words to say. Depend upon him. He gives us the promise of the Holy Spirit for the witness that we give. He goes on, of course, to talk about how terrible this persecution can get sometimes. And, of course, this language has indeed been, been experienced by believers through, throughout the world, especially in... in uh, countries that are communist or dominated by radical Islam, we see these same things, the brother delivering brother over to death. I mean, in our lifetime, there are Christians who are killed by their own family members because they profess faith in Christ. Children handing over their parents, parents handing over their children. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. And that's the other, the other purpose clause here I want you to notice here. He uses it twice, right? For my namesake. He says it uh, up above in uh, verse 18. For my sake. Okay, I want you to realize when this is happening, when you're encountering adversity, in a sense, it's not really about you. Okay? They're not really hating you for being you. They're hating you for being identified with me, for my sake. Think about how that transforms 
your perception of persecution, your perception of suffering, it's not meaningless. It's not meaningless. It, you, you're not just the victim of chance when this happens. Even as Jesus was not the victim of chance in his crucifixion and death, he, he was in control all along. It's for my sake that this is happening to you. Remember that. Let that encourage you. Let that strengthen you. So you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. There's the last imperative. Flee when necessary. Don't seek out persecution for its own sake. If you can avoid it, if you can flee from it, then do so, because that will just give you an opportunity to take the gospel somewhere else. And lastly, in this passage, in applying it to yourself, notice where this ends. Okay, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes, and that coming, I've argued, is a coming in judgment. Be assured that you, the loyal subjects of the king, will see justice done one day. You will see a judgment on evil. Isn't there something in you sometimes that cries out for evil to be punished? I was talking with my son Aaron about that just this past week, a certain situation he's dealing with. He's saying, he says, sometimes I find myself longing for justice because oftentimes justice is not found in this world. Well, God, Jesus' assurance to his disciples here is justice will be, in the end, affirmed. No sin will go unpunished. God will prove himself, as he says in the prophet Isaiah, he will prove himself to be a righteous judge. The judges in the courts of this world are not perfectly righteous. In fact, if you go to court these days, you, you just sort of hope that it's going to come out the way it should. <laughs> but there is coming a perfect judge, one who is righteous, and he will judge all sin. Now, that should give us a bit of a pause when we first hear it. Because if he says he's going to be a righteous judge and judge all sin, well, that means judgment's going to fall on us, doesn't it? So how is it that Isaiah can say, speaking the words of the Lord, I am a righteous God and a Savior? How can he be both? How can he be righteous and judge sin and yet save sinners? He can't overlook sin. He simply cannot. It is impossible for God to overlook sin. If he did, he would cease to be God because he would cease to be holy. So Isaac, he can be righteous and yet the savior of sinners. Well, Paul reminds us, of course, that it is because he has judged your sin in Jesus Christ. So your sin has been punished. Christ bore the punishment for your sin. So then when he comes in judgment on sin, he comes in salvation for his people. 
we have the assurance of God's word that in the end all things will be made well all will be well in the end sometimes my wife and I say to one one of us will say to the other tell me it's going to work out all right <laughs> and of course the reply is always it's going to work out all right we know it is because God is in control and he is working for his glory and the good of his people in all things. I, I hope you, be, you will be encouraged by this to be strong and steadfast in your witness and in your obedience to him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you have shown us the end before it gets here. You've told us how, how history turns out. Uh, you've told us how life turns out for every one of us. Oh, Lord, help us to heed your word, to, to run to you for forgiveness of our sins, to know in Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one who took the penalty for our sins upon himself and who clothed us in his righteousness. Oh, Lord, it's no wonder why this is called good news, because it is the best possible news. Keep it in front of our, in the front of our minds, Lord. Help us to be wise in the decisions that we make even this week, and to be peaceable toward others, to, to bear a faithful witness to you, even as we go about our daily tasks. May even the way we do uh, chores from day to day reflect our confidence in you, that our work is not in vain, that you're working in all things for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.